Well, church, we're in Acts chapter 2, speaking of the early church. This is in the immediate aftermath of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and 3,000 people are baptized. And the Lord is moving mightily in this early church experience. Listen to chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we're talking about this concept of awe. Awe is being thunderstruck and mesmerized by the great, glorious goodness of the living God expressly found in the person and work of Christ. And it says the church stood in awe. They stood in awe of the greatness of the Lord. And this, this awe, because Messiah had come and had lived a perfect life and died on the cross for their sins and risen victorious over death and ascended to heaven and has poured out the Holy Spirit, this awe produced an environment of awe that had four markings according to this text. Number one, they were together, which means they had a common theme, a common outlook, and that was their glory and reality of Christ. Number two, they freely sold things and gave it to people in need. So the reality of Christ broke the stranglehold of materialism that was part of the fabric of many people's hearts. Now, number three, it says that they were people who went to their homes and they ate their meals with glad and sincere or glad and generous hearts. And the fourth mark of this environment of awe is they had favor with all types of people. The watching world said, we see their empathy. We see their concern for those in need. We see their celebration. We see their joy and their hope. We see their sense of purpose in life, and we like what we see. So they had favor with all types of people. And that is the environment of awe. But the question is, what feeds this concept of awe? And I'm suggesting this according to the text. They devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, which is the Scripture. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to relationship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. We've covered the first two today, and next week we cover the concept of the breaking of bread. And I want to suggest to you that the breaking of bread is a way of stating they gave themselves, they devoted themselves intentionally with a great purpose to worship. Listen to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The breaking of bread symbolizes feast, celebration, which eventually became, we believe, the Lord's Supper. But it's a statement regarding the joy 
and the necessity and the priority of worship. So what I'm saying is that a church, an individual who's marked by commitment to the apostolic teaching, the Bible, to relationship that's strong and intense and centered on Christ and to worship and to prayer will be a balanced individual, a great commission believer because it says God was adding to their number daily those who are being saved. So let me give you a definition of worship. It's in the worship guide. It comes from a man named Carl F.H. Henry, one of the leading thinkers in the evangelical church in the last century, said this, Christian worship is awe and adoration of the self-revealing God as the one who is incomparably worthy. It involves an awareness of his lordship, his reign, his dominion, and the amazing grace of the cross. It is, he says, awe and adoration of the self-revealing God who's revealed himself in the person of Christ in creation and in his word. The self-revealing Christ is incomparably worthy of our worship and praise, and we understand his dominion, his leadership, and the glory and forgiveness of sins by the cross. Worship is absolutely essential. So this morning, it's going to be a lot of application, but let me give you, first of all, a paradigm for worship. A paradigm for worship, whether it's individual worship, we call, I call it the morning watch, quiet time, or Lord's Day worship among God's people or when God's people are gathered together in small groups. A paradigm for worship. Four statements from John chapter 15. Worship is birthed in part in the understanding that I am a person who is constantly in need of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm a person who comes to the Lord with a barrenness. I'm a leaky bucket and I've leaked out and I need continually to be refocused, recalibrated, retaught, reformed, renewed under the hand of God. I I, I don't, my personal, I'm a morning person. So I get up, I get some tea, make some hot tea. Uh, I get out my journal. I get out my Bible, my Bible reading plan. Uh, I, I get out a little book I'm reading through called The Confessions of Augustine. I get another book I'm studying called The History of the Hymns. And, and so I, I read, I, I pray, I read the Bible, I write down some thoughts, but I come to the Lord saying, Lord, I cannot pull this off without your indwelling presence. I just quote to the Lord. I say, Lord, John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides or remains or adheres to me will bring forth much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I say, Lord, I I need your perspective. I need your empowerment. I need your grace. So I, I I come to you on the Lord's day saying, Lord, this is your day, and I'm worshiping with your people, and I am sitting under the authority of your word, and I need a fresh movement of the Spirit of God in my heart because, God, I cannot pull off what you've asked me to pull off apart from your empowering grace. I just can't. You know, I, I, I need to be recalibrated. I, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, it starts off by saying, it's the end of the matter. He gives the thesis statement, then he goes into his experience. He said, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
Why? Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I looked at the arrogant around me, the people who mock God or have nothing to do with God, who are shoddy in their business practices. And he says, they, they, they are healthy. Their stock portfolio is strong. They are not people concerned about righteousness and honoring the poor, caring for those who cannot care for themselves. He says, they, they just live for themselves. Wear, they wear pride as a necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through their healthy bodies, and their hearts overflow with follies, and they speak malice and threaten oppression. They're bad people, and yet they're doing well. And then he said, I said to myself, self, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've, I've tried to be a righteous man. It's, he says, and I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I really said what I thought was, I was thinking to people, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have heard the coming generations. And then he says this. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. He said, I, I didn't get it. He said, I was like a brute beast until I entered the sanctuary of God. He says, then I saw their final end. Then I saw where they were going. He says, what the psalmist is crying, he just says, this is where I am. But he says, but, but, but God, by his grace, gave me a new perspective. He recalibrated my thinking. And so when we come to worship, we come saying, Lord, I, I need to think well. I, I need to have your mind. Augustine died in 430. He wrote a book called The Confessions. Let me just read something from book four. He said, Christ let us love. Christ let us love. He made these gifts around us, and he's not far off. For he did not make them and so depart, but they are off him and they are in him. He says, every gift comes from the living God. He said, stand with Christ and you shall stand. Rest in Christ and you shall be at rest. To what end would you walk these difficult and toilsome ways. There, there is no rest where you seek it. You seek a blessed life in the land of death. It is not there. For how should there be a blessed life where there is no life? And the Augustine says, you rest in Christ and you'll rest. You stand with him and you can stand. I'm covering Deuteronomy 10 on Friday morning with some men and I'm saying we do these things. Moses says, that it may go well with you. You do these things, you obey, that it may go well with you. I think if Hebrews 11, the New Testament, says that without faith it's impossible to please him for everyone who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Rewards. Gives us an understanding of life. Let's us see the beauty of Christ. Let's us see the hope of the forgiveness of sins. And then there's this hymn that some of us may have grown up in the church, and we heard this hymn frequently as a hymn to invite people to Christ, and we invite you to Christ today, to trust the Lord. 
Sin is separated you from a holy God, and Jesus died on the cross for the sin of all those who would say, forgive me of my sin. Gives you the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. But this is the hymn entitled, Jesus, I Come. Just listen to the words. And to me, this hymn is a hymn for fellowship this morning, if you've been a Christian for 50 years or 60 years. Because it's a hymn saying, I need the reality of Christ in my life. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness and into thy health, out of my want and into thy wealth. Out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. You hear that? Once the next stanza says, out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. And into the glorious gain of thy cross, I come. Another stanza, out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come. Or out of despair and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. In other words, give me a perspective on life. I'm a leaky bucket. I need the grace and the goodness and the empowering presence of Christ in my life. So, so first of all, the paradigm, we come saying, you're the tree. I'm a twig. If I abide in you, it's good. I need to abide. The second thing is we, we ponder the Word of God. We think the Word of God. We sing it. We meditate on it. We, listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 7. He says, if, if you abide in me, remain in me, adhere to me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, if you run to Jesus and the Word of God becomes part of your life and you think it and you breathe it and you sing it and you ponder it, then your desires will be God's desires. And, and so I need to think and ponder the Word of God. As Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, so God, I come in need and I ponder what I read. I think. I ask God, how do you want me to respond to this? And, and then thirdly is what I just put down as the, the requisite emotional response that there's an emotional response to the, to the Scripture. The Holy Spirit brings an emotional response. Sometimes it's joy and gladness and laughter, and sometimes it's tears. It's tears for those we love and know who do not know the Lord. If they die today, they're going to hell. We, there are tears for the church in North Africa and the Middle East. Dear brothers and sisters who are under the jackboot of ISIS, and they're being killed for their faith today. It's tears over my sin that has disrupted fellowship and tears of repentance or there's laughter and joy and happiness, but, but there are requisite emotions called for. And so as, as I read the Bible and I abide and I think, then it calls forth an emotional response. Now, this happened to me this week, and it may be a stretch, but listen to the illustration. So my office is down the hall and across the hall are the restrooms. So those are the restrooms I go to, but also on the hall above the restrooms are all the kindergartners and first graders at Palmetto Christian Academy. So oftentimes when I'm in there getting ready to leave, the, the room is invaded by a group of small boys who are going to the restroom. And so I'm in there this week and I'm getting ready to leave and a bunch of kindergartners come running in. And uh, as I'm leaving, I hear two little boys get into a fight and they say, I was here first. No, I was here first. I get to go first. No, I get to go first. And I stop and say, well, you know, the teacher can't come. Maybe I can 
give some oversight here. And so I look at the little boys are arguing about, you know, coming to the, you know, the toilet. And uh, so I, I say to the one closest to it, I say, well, why don't you go first and we'll let this, we'll let you go second. And so the little boy said, okay, okay. And the other little boy said, and he said, I want my mommy. And he started crying in the middle of the bathroom. And I said, oh, well, now what do I do? You know, do I, you know, how do I say, you know, suck it up, buttercup, stiff, you know, you, be a man here, you know. And I just started patting him and says, your mommy will be here soon. It's going to be okay. You can use the bathroom just as men and just hang in there. And then there's another little boy with a stool pushed up washing his hands. And there's always one of these in every class. Okay? He's washing his hands. He said, Pastor Brown, I've discovered something. He's a kindergartner. I've discovered something. I've discovered that if you, if you just, I want to say, if I just try hard and obey, the day goes by much faster. That's cool. I'm going, well, thank you for that. I'm trying to help this kid. And uh, he's given he's given a, a tutorial on, on how to how to respond. And um, you know, he's he's four weeks in his academic career giving out advice. You know what I mean? And so, and so I said, yeah, thank you for that. And I patted the guy on the back and kind of left. And I don't want to do it. Um, but as I thought about it, I thought about, you know, that's kind of a picture to a degree of what the Holy Spirit does when you read the Bible. You're standing there saying, I'm in need. You may not say I need my mommy, but I'm in need. And the Holy Spirit gives comfort. But also the Holy Spirit also speaks truth. The truth is if you just are obedient and you do the right thing, just, so the Holy Spirit gives comfort and admonishes. The Holy Spirit gives empathetic embrace and tells us to press forward. And so I, 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 I need the Holy Spirit to do that. And then fourthly, after the requisite response, there's a resolve to do the right thing and to bear fruit. Listen to this. This is, again, John 15, verse 8, says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove yourselves to be my disciples. Then again in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And I just say, God wants me to be a person who bears fruit. And as I bear fruit, verse 11, these things I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, so, so I, I come in need, I hear the word of God, there's an emotional requisite response, and then there's a resolve to do the right thing and to make adjustments in my life to bear fruit. That's it. That, that's the paradigm for worship, whether it's in a small group, individual worship, or corporate worship. We should come today saying, Lord, speak to my heart. I'm a leaky bucket. There's power when God's people unite and worship together and call out for your power and your grace and your anointing. Worship. So let me give you some principles about worship this week, and I'll pick it up again next week. Number one, when we worship, we play to an audience of one. Now you're surrounded by friends or family or whatever, but really we're worshiping. This is about God. There's a man named Soren Kierkegaard who lived in Denmark in the eight, died in the 1830s, somewhere around there. Soren Kierkegaard was a theologian, a, a, a thinker. And he looked at the survey of Denmark, and Denmark at that time had a state church. If you're Dane, you're Lutheran. To be Dane is to be Lutheran. And, and so 
Kierkegaard, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor, looked at the landscape of the church and saw proper belief but no emotion, no heart, no vision, no power. And so he talked about a dead orthodoxy, right belief but no passion. And he said we must realize that we play to an audience of one. You see, we deal with God who watches us. We deal with a God who gave us in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. Or as the psalmist says, if I go to the farthest part of the world or in the depths of the earth or the heights of the heavens, you're there. We deal with God. We played an audience of one. And, and, and so... There's a little book called Pilgrim's Progress by a guy named John Bunyan. It's an allegory of faith. And early in the book, Christian and faithful go to a city called Vanity Fair, which is a place of total secularity, total materialism. And they were selling their wares and doing this and doing that. And Christian and Pilgrim were walking through before, right before they killed faithful, Christian and faithful. And they were amazed at the language of Christian and faithful and how they dressed and the way they carried themselves and how they weren't mesmerized by all the wares and the things that represented the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And they came up to Christian and they said to him, aren't you going to buy anything? What will you buy? And Christian said one of the greatest lines of the book, he said, sir, we buy the truth. Boom. We're people of the truth. We walk before God. We want to be good citizens and, and, and praying citizens, and we want to be economically attuned to what's going on, but our ultimate goal in life is to bring glory to God and to honor Him forever because we deal with God. So in worship, that's what we say. Whether it's your morning worship, whether it's your Lord's Day worship, we deal with God. Number two, we must be Christ-focused, and as we're Christ-focused, will be filled with joyful sobriety, happy earnestness, joyful sobriety. Now, the book of Acts is a historical narrative. It's a, it's a history book of God's dealing in the early church, written by Dr. Luke. And I'm going to give you a 20,000-foot overview of Acts 3, 4, and 5 in the next five minutes. So after this text that we've been studying, this is what happens. Peter and John are going into the temple to pray. And as they go into the temple to pray, there is a man there begging for money who has been lame or crippled from birth. And there was no safety net to help the disenfranchised. They were just beggars. And as he goes into the temple, he says, can you please give me money? And Peter and John have this interchange. Peter says this is one of the most famous interchanges in Acts. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood up and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who formerly was a beggar. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Wonder and amazement. 
And then Peter preached. People ran into where he was. You won't believe this. You won't believe this. And Peter lays it out. He says, listen to me. This is just part of the sermon. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And then he says, now repent and believe the good news. So that God may bring times of refreshment and he may restore joy in your hearts. The restoration of all things. And he says, and remember, as you close the sermon, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, he said to Abraham. And you're seeing that today because God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. They talked about the resurrection. Every time in Acts, they talk about the resurrection. Because the resurrection is a proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then we go to chapter 4. And they, they bring Peter and John before the ruling council. And they were not amazed. They were just flat out annoyed by the teaching. Greatly annoyed because they taught the people and proclaimed that in Jesus was the resurrection from the dead. You know, Jesus still calls for that response. Either you're amazed or you're annoyed. Either you stand in awe or you just want to just get it out of there. They're just annoyed because they taught the resurrection, because they taught about Jesus, and they arrested them. They put him in custody the next day, and they said, you can't preach anymore in this name. And, and Peter filled the Holy Spirit said, listen, let, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that, that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised up from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and their salvation and no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which you must be saved under heaven. Boom. And he said, whether I should preach or not, you decide, but I've got to obey God. And he left there after they threatened him and they got together as a church and they prayed and they had quite a, quite a prayer meeting. They raised their voices together, and this is why they prayed in part. And now, Lord, look upon your, their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had finished praying, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, let me tell you something. There's a joyful sobriety here. And then this happened. And it wasn't the forerunning of the great proletariat revolution under Karl Marx. But it was something that was pretty supernatural. The people looked around them and saw, they saw need. And they voluntarily, voluntarily brought in all kinds of possessions. And they laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. And they said, you know, let's take care of people. Let's, God has given us generous hearts. God has broken the stranglehold of materialism in our lives. Joyful sobriety. And then something happened that just blows my mind. Acts 5. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They had some property. And they told everybody, we sold the property. 
And here are all the proceeds from our property. We're going to lay it at the feet of the apostles, and we're going to be glad and rejoice. And they made that statement. And Sapphira, the woman, left. And Ananias, her husband, is standing there. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You're trying to deceive us. You're making a mockery of the church. You're, you're, you're blaspheming the name of Jesus because you said, I promised before the living God I did this. He said, Ananias, there are four young men standing here who will carry out your dead body. Boom, he dies. They carry him out. Sapphira comes in, not knowing what's happened a couple hours later. And Peter says, Sapphira, did you sell this land for this much money? Absolutely. We're big givers. Can you maybe compose a hymn in my honor, whatever. And Peter says, Sapphira, the same men that carried out your husband's body will carry your body out. Boom. And then this is what it says. This is one of the greatest understatements I think ever anywhere. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I read that and I go, you know, we deal with God. Therefore, there's a joyful sobriety about what we do. When we embrace a child, all these kids in the hall, I just like to embrace them and how you doing? How old are you? When's your birthday? And they just smile. And you know, when, when, I, when I touch a person, I'm not touching just somebody that's made by chance, that's insignificant. I touch somebody that has an eternal destiny. An eternal destiny. And, and, and when we don't live with joyful sobriety, shame on us. When we live for the next big fix or the next event or the next this or the next that or the next, instead of thinking about how to honor the Lord, shame on us. But see, worship refocuses. Worship brings me down to the reality of the mind of God. Worship recalibrates my heart and my mind. Number three, worship is always a response to the gracious initiative of God. Can't say a lot about that. Our time is running. It's gone. It's not gone. I'm going to keep on preaching for a while, but... Uh, listen to these verses. Exodus 20, verse 1. God is getting ready to give us the, 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 the ten rules to live by, the ten commandments and ten words of promise. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've done this. Now, no other gods before, before me. No graven images don't take my name in vain. Worship me on the Lord's day. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Because these things destroy. And it's an invitation based upon grace. 1 Peter chapter 2. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Behold the invitation of God. Very quickly, number four. God is a self-revealing God. The definition says he, he is a God who is self-revealing. 
who is incomparably worthy to be praised and worship. God has revealed himself in his word. Therefore, we are intentionally word-oriented. We believe the Bible. We go to Romans 12 where it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You, you renew your mind. You, you think the word. You meditate. You memorize. You, you get, you, we are word people. We're, we're mental cognitive people. And that, from that flows our emotions. And the, but we're people of the word. And, and so this is a self-revealing God. And so we, we want to sing the word and, and speak it. Let me, I'm going to go to just a side road about the importance of good singing and good music and Listen, listen to Colossians 3.16. It says, uh, let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing. As you sing songs with, with thankfulness in your heart unto the Lord. Then I, I look at that and I, and I go, you know, we are, by, by heritage, as you read the Bible, we are a singing people. And we need to sing psalms to God and songs to God and with joy and celebration. And I always tell people that the singing, the hymns, the scripture songs should be, should be biblical, Christ-centered, and auricularly pleasing. And so we have that here. Thanks be to God for the music we have here. And in the gym, the blended the contemporary worship is, is outstanding. And I thank God for that. And don't take it for granted. But, but listen, you need to be a singing person. Some of you say, I, I wasn't raised in a singing family. I, I wasn't either. Some of you say, well, I went to school and they didn't have chorus. I had chorus growing up. If you're older, you had chorus. And I, I went to chorus. And I'm, I, I've always loved to sing. I don't know why I like to sing. And uh, in the fourth grade, quick story, fourth grade, we had 100 fourth graders and we were going to have a big parent rally and let us, we were going to perform and so we sang and, and so, I, I, so we were having the dress rehearsal and the teacher who was just a sweet lady, Mrs. Shore, she's my teacher, she said, somebody's off, somebody's off. Now let me, here's the notes again, here's the notes, just let's try again. So we sang, I thought, who is off in here, you know? And so she said, I'm sorry, but somebody is off. And so she had us all line up, 100 people line up. It's a true story. And she went down the line, and she listened to us. And after it was all over, she said, class is me. She said, Buster, can I speak to you for a second? <laughs> I thought, solo. <laughs> it's time. It's time to be discovered. And she said, you know, tomorrow night when, when we sing for our parents, I said, yes, monsieur, if you just move your lips and not make any sound. I said, yes, ma'am. I survived it, I, I, you know, but, but uh, sing unto the Lord. So, so, so just sing. It's a biblical command. There, I can tell you the name of two brothers I've known for years. I love these men. I've seen them honor the Lord with their lives, and they have a singing voice only a mother could love. But I've stood beside them when they've sung unto the Lord, and I love them for it. I love them for it. So just another word of exhortation. So I, I sometimes will meet visitors in the hall, and they say, now, where, where, is your, 
where is your traditional worship? Or where's your blended worship? Some people say, oh, where's your blended worship? I don't really care about singing those old hymns and the choirs and stuff like that. I, I don't know them well enough to rebuke them in the name of Jesus on the spot. But I want to say, oh, man. Or they'll say, some people say, where's your blended worship? I don't want to go to contemporary worship. Those electric guitars asked from the pit of hell. And, you know, worship leaders with facial hair, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that. And I'm going, come on, give me a break. Is it biblically strong? Is it Christ-honoring? Is it auricularly pleasing? And I thank God for our worship. I thank God for the spirit of those who lead. C.S. Lewis became a believer from Oxford, PhD from Oxford. And Lewis was, um, he wrote a book called God in the Dock. And one chapter had 21 questions people have asked me. One of the questions was this. If I'm a believer in Jesus, do I have to go to church? I much prefer to worship God in my room instead of going to church. And Lewis says, you know, I, I, I kind of sort of, I feel the same way, kind of sort of. I, I'm, I'm, Lewis will say, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't want to go and be with people. But he said, it's a biblical command and it's good for my soul because it comes from God. And then he wrote this. And I thought, this is just so good. It's in your bulletin. Worship God. He said, I, I went to church. When I started to go to church, I disliked their hymns which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I, I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and quite different education. And then gradually, my conceit, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. So, so, so what he says that uh, it's glorious to be with God's people. And I just applaud the worship that takes the great hymns of the faith and we learn to sing them. And we sing contemporary songs that speak of Jesus. I want to be a singing person with joy. And I'll just say to you, biblical command, sing. Sing. Sing in the shower. But sing, sing, sing in worship. Very quickly, we believe in undistracting excellence. I'm going to Undistracting excellence by that, all things I want to say, but by that, that I mean we believe that worship is a holy time and therefore we want to make it as, as um, concentrated as we can. If it's cold outside, we'll have some heat. If it's hot outside, we'll have the AC on. Uh, we, 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 but we come with prepared hearts. We come on time. We come to worship. We come to be impacted by the Holy Spirit as we sing and read and hear and listen and ponder. It's an appointed hour for the Holy Spirit to work in my heart. I come as a needy person. We love children, but we ask you to take noisy children to the nursery. If you, if you have, have to get up and leave because you're not feeling well and you get outside and you feel better, don't come back and sit on the second or third row. Stay in the back because we, we believe in undistracted excellence. We want to do everything we can for people to hear and know the Word of God. And sixthly, worship should change me by the Spirit. 
They should change me. And I would just say to those of us who are a little bit older in the faith, do not let the music die. And I continually pray, Lord, don't let me get over the absolute wonder of saying Jesus is risen out of the dead. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit and he's coming again. And he has an eternal love for me. When he died, he died with my name etched upon his hand, some of him say. Don't let me get over the wonder of saying my sins are forgiven and to be absent from the body of death is to be present with the Lord. Don't let me forget these things. Don't let me forget to say and to rejoice in the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now there, there's this quote I'm going to give you from a guy named Charles Darwin. And many people use this quote to say, this is what happens when you deny the reality of God. Darwin was raised in a Unitarian Universalist home. He was never in a home or in a place where God was defined. God was just some type of force. God was not the redeemer, sustainer, creator. He was a force that cannot be defined. He grew up with that. He embraced that and even broadened his definition as he got older. Charles Darwin, by all accounts, was a very gracious man. He married his cousin, a maiden named Wedgwood. They had 10 children, two died in infancy, one died at the age of 10, broke Darwin's heart and his wife's heart. But as he was an old man, he died at age 73, he, he wrote some letters to his seven surviving children, put them in a little book. And this is just part of one letter. Listen to this. Darwin says, up to the age of 30 and beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in William Shakespeare. Formerly pictures gave me considerable and music, very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures of nature or music. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws out of a large collection of mere facts. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. And what he says is, I've lost the wonder. I've lost the joy. I've lost the aha-ness of life. I thought about this. I met with a man this past week who's a little bit older than me. And he's, he's vibrant and he loves the scripture, and he was studying some issues, and we were batting things around, and he has a zest for life, and he may be retired, but man, he's charging. And I thought, let me be that in five or ten years, how much ever old he is than me. And I say to you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do not let the music of Jesus die. Come to worship on a daily basis and on the Lord's Day with need. Listen to the word. Ponder it. Let the emotional requisite response come flowing from your heart and make life adjustments.
because God's prescribed means of awakening and instilling and keeping the fire in our hearts is spirit-wrought, Jesus-centered, Bible-saturated, worship that's filled with joyful sobriety. Let's pray. Lord, this is um, your day and we're your people, so take this word and apply it to our spirits, our hearts. Let us make adjustments where it's called for, and don't let us be people who just walk through our morning devotions or our evening devotions or just kind of walk through the Lord's Day or just walk through our community groups or walk through our Bible study classes, but let us be people who come with broken, joyful anticipation to ponder the Word, and may emotions be called forth that are requisite to what we're hearing, and may we make life adjustments to the glory of your name. Thank you that you've given us your Word for our good for our welfare, and for the glory of your name. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much.